1 Samuel 19 is where we are in a run-up just to get everybody's minds on the same page. In chapter 15, we are watching Saul in that end result of operating in his office, in his calling, um, in his insecurities, and in his fear, and in disobedience to God, having God remove the kingdom from him. Chapter 16, you have the man who is identified as a man after God's own heart, as a man who is better than Saul, as David be anointed by the prophet Samuel in chapter 16. In chapter 17, you have David standing as God's champion and the nation of Israel's champion as the man in between, a position that Saul should have been standing in as king but he didn't. So David is standing in that position. We see this victory in the Lord over the giant Goliath. At the end of that, in chapter, whatever, what, chapter 18's next, right? You have the women of Israel singing Saul's praises and David's praises. And you watch Saul, his jealousy increase. So in chapter 18, we watch Saul try to kill David four times because of his jealousy, because of his own insecurities, because he knows that the kingdom has been stripped from him. And the understanding is he knows that David is the one who is his replacement. So four times in chapter 18, we are watching Saul attempt to kill David. Today, we watch another eight times in this chapter, Saul attempting to kill David. But at the end of chapter 18, the, the statement is, Saul knows that the Lord, that Yahweh is with David. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the main ideas to press into this is Saul's a believer. Saul believes that God is. But Saul's issue is he doesn't have faith. He has fear. His life is founded on fear. That's produced through his insecurities, and it's produced through... Uh, the, you know, his, his, how he thinks he's failing to meet the desires and needs of the culture around him. So he's influenced on what, the, what he thinks that the people want, how that influences his behavior. David's faith, on the other hand, David's relationship with his belief in Yahweh is founded on faith. And David is a fabulous example that we are going to watch through multiple chapters. This chapter today in 19, as a way of setup, we're going to, again, have a contrast between Team Saul and Team David. Team Saul is underneath the influence of an evil and unholy spirit, where you have Saul and him sending his messengers to go and try and off David. And the other team, underneath the Holy Spirit, on Team David, you have David and Jonathan, David's wife, Michael. You have Samuel and these other prophets. But the idea that we're going to focus in on these two teams and the contrast of kingdoms that we're continuing to press in is the idea of intercession. Have you ever heard of intercessory prayer? There's a, there's a great book I don't remember what year is written in. It's, uh, it's by Reese Howells, and it's called Intercessor. 
fabulous just biography and testimony. This is before World War II and through World War II, specific things that God was doing in this man's life. And really, it's just it's story after story of here's a journey in the school of intercessory prayer. So fabulous book, highly recommended, really mess you up and challenge you in how you stand in the gap on behalf of others. But this is the idea of intercession. To be the idea of intercession or intercessory prayer or interceding on the behalf of somebody else, you're standing in that gap. It's like David standing in that gap as God's champion, interceding on the behalf of the army of Israel and for God to do the war that needs to transpire on that day. We're going to watch this idea play out in all these different characters this morning in this chapter. But this idea of interceding, it's you are, you're stepping into a context. You're stepping into a situation with the desire to change the events, change what's going on. So you can have, you know, an intercession in somebody's life who is struggling with drugs and you're coming alongside of them to get them out of that environment, place them in a safe environment to help recovery happen. That would be an idea of intercession or interceding in somebody's life. We're going to watch Jonathan intercede on behalf of David. We're going to watch Michael do it. We're going to watch Samuel do it. We're going to watch Saul interceding in other people into the attempted murder of David. But ultimately, what we're going to watch, we're going to watch our God as our ultimate intercessor. He is the one that steps into the context of our life, into our circumstances, whatever they may be, and he is interceding on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is in us, interceding, leading us in prayer, leading us in conversations. When it comes to intercessory prayer, how many of you guys know why prayer works? You do? I don't have a clue why prayer works. I don't know why you can ask God to do something and he violates the free will of another individual and does it. Yeah, I mean, you sit with Moses, nation of Israel, is committing idolatry because they don't know what happened to Moses. Their, their eyes are on men and not on God. He's up on the mount for 40 days and 40 nights. Nation of Israel finds themselves in idolatry. Moses comes down, throws down the Ten Commandments, the law of God, in anger, makes them eat and drink their idol, essentially is what happens in the story. But God says, you know what, Moses? We're just going to kill everybody, and we're going to start the nation over with you. But then you watch Moses intercede on behalf of the people. Now, was God really going to kill the nation of Israel? I don't know. He said he wanted to. And then you watch Moses. Hey, no, Lord. If that occurs, then your name is going to be blasphemed. The nations are going to say, you brought your people out here to destroy them. And there's an awesome prayer there in Exodus, watching Moses intercede on behalf of the people. And you watch God declare his name. He is good. He is kind. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is marvelous. So I don't know why intercessory prayer works. Because a lot of it, God knows beginning from end. And a lot of times, he's just drawing us into his will, into his relationship. He's drawing us into what he wants to do in your life. He's drawing us in what he wants to do in your life and through your life, in the life of another person. And we're going to watch all of these scenarios today. Ultimately, God's will is going to be performed. And do you want to participate in that or do you want to stand against it? Be David and participate. Don't be Saul and stand against. All right, here we go in chapter 19. 
Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. So remember last chapter, two times he tried to throw a spear. That didn't work. David is the head of the army, so he's hoping that the enemies of Israel will kill David. That doesn't work. Saul knows that God is with David. And Saul willfully is standing against what he knows the will of God to be. And he can't do anything about it. So, hey, son, servants, do you intercede on my behalf and kill David for me? Can you imagine going to your child and asking them to commit murder? We're talking about the law, the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. And here Saul is willingly, in his insanity, in his fear, he's going to his son, the man who is to inherit the kingdom of Israel from his perspective, and is asking him to commit willful murder, willful bloodshed. Tells you, again, the, the depth of Saul's insanity and how he is wrapped up in himself and how he is justifying this as the right thing to do, uh, the images continue to grow in regards to him. But Jonathan, Saul's son, he delighted greatly in David, committed to David. So Jonathan told David, now he's interceding on behalf of David, going to him, having a conversation. You can tell when uh, Saul's telling Jonathan and all the servants to, to kill David, try and plan things out. You can see Jonathan sitting there in silence, talking to the Lord in his, in his mind, in his heart. How is he going to deal with this? Determines he's got to go have a conversation with David to warn him. So my father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. So again, Jonathan has in his heart, he's got to warn David now so that nothing happens to David immediately. And he also has it in his heart that he needs to go have a conversation with his dad and try to bring some clarity and sanity to his father's wayward heart. So verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance, a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it. And you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Any of you ever have an intimidation factor when it comes to confronting somebody in their sin? I don't like confrontation. We talk about this all the time. If you want to be confronted, go talk to Julie. She'll tell it to you straight. Me, I'm going to kind of beat around the bush because I want to be your friend. And, you know, I know me. Anyways, got empathy and sympathy. Julie will tell, you, tell it to you straight. The courage, again, for Jonathan. He's going to his dad. He knows his dad's position concerning who David is, not just as a best friend in covenant, but David's now brother-in-law. He's part of the family. 
And he knows that his dad is off. He knows that his dad is pursuing intentional and public sin. And Jonathan takes courage in the Lord, takes faith in the Lord, and chooses not just to be an intercessor in prayer, but to intercede on behalf of David into the life of the individual that is threatening David's life. Tremendous amount of courage. And again, this is, this is, this is son talking to father. Children, honor your father and mother. Don't ever confront, you know, you know, there's all these different ideas that can be shoved down our throats that are not true in regards to conversation. Primary relationship is your relationship with God. And if your spouse, if your parent, if your child, if your friend, if somebody is out of that relationship, you have that freedom, you have that calling, you are to have that love and gentleness and truth and boldness in our God to go and intervene into that person's life. Not only is Jonathan attempting to save David, he's also trying to save his dad. Dad, why would, why would you miss on purpose? You know what God's will is. And you know David, trying to bring clarity, trying to bring truth into all the falsehoods that Saul is holding on to. You know that David has been very good to you. You know that he took his life into his hands on behalf of you and on behalf of the nation and stood in that gap. And on that day when David killed Goliath, Dad, you rejoiced. Truth, clarity, what do you think Saul does? He has a moment of sanity. So Saul, verse 6, heeded the voice of his son. Look at this. Saul swore a vow, a commitment, a covenant. As the Lord lives, David shall not be killed. Jonathan called David. Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. What do you think of Saul's vow? What do you think of his clarity? Is he repentant? I really don't think he is. How I perceive Saul's statement and his vow to God, to his son, is Saul's realization, Jonathan is not on my team. He's on David's team. So I'm going to tell Jonathan what I need to tell Jonathan to appease Jonathan as I look for other opportunities and other means to kill David is how I interpret Saul's vow. Because even if he is genuine, he willfully breaks this vow. Verse 8, David's in this position again. There's war again. David goes out and fights with the Philistines, strikes them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. So we have this consistent testimony in regards to David's role in um, sirens. Lord, whatever emergency is going on, may you stand in the gap and have victory in that circumstance. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us. Thank you for your mercy. There's this war. As David has gone out to war, we are told in the last chapter that he behaved wisely. The language is literally that whatever he put his hand to on the battlefield, God gave him success, prospered him, gave him favor. So that was, those circumstances were the ways that 
Saul was pressing into in regards to his jealousy of David. So now that David is back in the court's good graces, and now that he's had another successful um, battle and coming back in, these are bringing up all the old emotions for Saul immediately. So verse 9, here's the distressing spirit, the evil spirit from the Lord that comes upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. Saul does not feel safe. If you're in your house, you're not sitting with your handgun in your hand if you feel safe and secure. Here Saul is not feeling safe in his own household. He is listening to the voice of an evil spirit and he is agitated. And here David is once again playing music with his hand as a worship leader. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. This is the third time, last chapter we saw him do it twice. But he, uh, but he slipped away. David escaped from Saul's presence. And Saul drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. So that sentence right there, David fleeing from Saul, 20 years. He's a fugitive on the run from the king in power. What's the last 20 years of your life look like? How much life has happened in that period of time? How much has God trained you and made you to be the man and woman in him that you are today? A lot of life experience in 20 years. Saul, he sends messengers to David's house to watch, to watch him, to kill him in the morning. So again, in this circumstance, uh, in the next chapter, we won't get into to it today, but Jonathan is clueless. And that's why I, I sit in... Um, just this understanding that Saul's vow, he's just appeasing his son, getting his son out of the way, out of the circumstance. Because in the next chapter, Saul and David, are, or Jonathan and David are talking, and Jonathan's like, Saul, David, you're crazy. My dad, my dad doesn't want to kill you. And then he goes, and we'll see that scene next week. Anyways, so Jonathan is clueless in regards to these messengers from Saul to go spy him out, kill him in the morning. Now you have Michael standing as an intercessor for David, David's wife. She told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. If you don't flee for safety right now, my husband, you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair uh, for his head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. So this is a um, spousal relationship in elevation to parental relationship. So here you have Michael is the daughter of Saul. So in this, she has left her father and mother, and she has now cleaved to her husband. Michael's right responsibility is to protect her spouse, even though it has consequences in her relationships with her parents. Does this make sense? That spousal relationship, husbands and wives, Outside of your relationship with God, your, your individual personal relationship with God, your relationship with your spouse is your primary relationship in life. 
Don't ever let your family take away from that, whether it's your children, whether it's your parents, whether it's your siblings, your job, your other friends, your ministry and service unto the Lord. Protect your relationship with your spouse. Fight for your spouse. Intercede on behalf of your spouse, even if it's going to have consequences in other relationships in your life. Make sure in the Lord, in that relationship, you are always fighting for one another as husband and wife. So Michael here stands in that role for David. Now what's really weird is it says that she takes an image. So the language is a teraphim. This is a household idol. So we don't know if she's got a life-size idol in her house, which the text lines up with this and how it's phrased. And most commentators press into this too. She takes some wood, some stone idol, household idol, false god that's life-size and puts this thing in the bed, puts some goat's hair on it, dresses it in David's clothes, covers it with a blanket to pretend to be David in bed. It's where most of the commentaries press into. And the reason why they press into that, well... One, that's what the text is saying. Now, the other side can be, all right, is, is the word just being used that, hey, she stuffed some pillows to make it look like there was a body in the bed, and that's the only reason why the word image was used. Possibly, most of the commentators are pressing into Michael is probably an, an idolater, believes in Yahweh, believe, just like her dad believes in the God of the nation of Israel. However, is pressing into the other cultural ideas of the nations around them and the idolatry around them. Here's this household idol. This idol is going to give me favor. It's going to give me fertility. It's going to give me blessing. Whatever the reason for the worship of these idols were in representing God. Ten Commandments, you shall not create an image of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or something that is under the earth. Not to have idolatry, to be totally free from these images. So there's this idea that Michael is not on the same page as her husband in regards to faith. One of the reasons that they press into it, once we get into David bringing the ark as he is dancing before the Lord, you watch Michael critique David's worship and then be essentially set aside as a wife in their relationship. So, Michael is interceding on behalf of her husband here. How much of this is for herself and protecting her own status? She's the daughter of the king right now. And she has the potential to be the sister of the future king through Jonathan or the wife of the future king through her husband. So how much of it she's protecting her own, we don't know. But she's interceding ultimately in the circumstance on behalf of David. Then Saul sends messengers back to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. Can't just insanity. I don't care if he's sick. Drag him in here on his bed so that I can knife him. That's Saul's attitude. Can you imagine? Murder is in all of us. It, always, it starts in anger. But how far gone, how far separate do you have to be from your creator to want to knife somebody to death? Can't imagine that level of darkness. God, protect us all from that darkness. Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. 
When the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with the cover of goat's hair for his head. Saul says to Michael, why have you deceived me? And the word is, why have you deserted me? You've abandoned me. You've betrayed me. Why have you, why have you abandoned me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? If you mark in your Bible, circle my enemy. This is, this is, this is Saul's perception, his understanding of what David and who David represents to him is an enemy. David is my enemy. Why would you help my enemy? You can tell, again, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Saul sees no benefit in David, only opposition. Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? She lies to her dad. Daddy, he threatened to kill me if I didn't let him go. Verse 18. David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he said, and he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. Now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When Saul saw, and when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. So he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Naoth and Ramah. So we went there to Naoth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Super weird. This is, this is actually really awesome. So Michael lets David out through the window in the middle of the night. Where Saul is in Gibeah and Ramah, Samuel's hometown, it's only a couple of miles. So David flees, run a couple of miles, and he's going, he's going to the spiritual leader of the country. And he's pouring out his heart to Samuel. Can't imagine that conversation. Saul has eyes and ears throughout the nation of Israel. All nations have eyes and ears. This is spycraft. Our nation has eyes and ears throughout the world to bring information back in regards to the activities that are going on. Saul has continually been watching Samuel. Remember when God sent Samuel to go and anoint David? Samuel was afraid. Saul, if Saul sees that I'm going, he's going to kill me because Saul has spies in Samuel's life. So David shows up at Samuel. Saul's spies go and bring back word to Saul where David is. So what does Saul do? Three times he's sending his messengers to go and either kill David or bring David back to be killed. And we watch God intercede 
the Holy Spirit intercede on behalf of David. This, this is a fascinating scene. One thing I want to comment on, and this is, this is not totally a side point, but it, it's just come up multiple times, came up a few times this week in reading when it comes to prophets. I want to be emphatic and clear and, uh, at, at the same time. So the emphatic side... If anybody says that they are a prophet of God and asks you for money, they are a false prophet. Always. You sit with Jesus as a prophet of God, as an itinerant preacher. Do you ever see Jesus going from community to community, taking up collections? No. What did he do? Jesus had benefactors. There were people that were called into his life, that the Holy Spirit sent into his life to take care of his daily needs as he is serving the Lord. You watch the Apostle Paul through the book of Acts and all of his different letters. Paul was collecting money. Who was he collecting it for? For himself? He's collecting it for the poor. Our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, they're impoverished, they're in a famine. And you, you Gentiles, the gospel has come to you. You owe your brothers and sisters your very life because Jesus was a Jew and your Savior has, you know, came and became a man of this chosen nation for all of his plans and purposes and sacrificed his life and has sent messengers into your life that you have responded to and you now have your sins forgiven and you are now standing into the life, in the life of your Savior, of your Christ. Will you not help those, your brothers and sisters that are impoverished? Yes or no? So Paul is out there pleading on behalf of the, being a voice for others. And we see this in thousands of worthwhile ministries that you can press into, that you can walk alongside of, that you can give money to. Every single ministry for the Lord has benefactors. If there is a school educating Christians, there are benefactors behind that school funding it. Whether you're sitting in a congregation, whether you're sitting in what's known as parachurch ministries, Money is needed to get the work done. The gospel is free. The word of God is free. Everything else costs, right? When it comes to the idea of a prophet, prophets are super weird. But there are multiple people in our culture that currently identify themselves as prophets of God, and all they're doing is peddling themselves. Just have a great deal of caution when people preach enticing things, enticing messages, and just have a book to sell or a conference to fund or whatever it may be, I pray that God gives us all discernment in those relationships. But at the same time, there's, there's, there's certain, you know, a workman's worthy of his wages. Man or woman writes a book and they want to publish it. There's costs associated with that activity. There's nothing wrong with those, those activities and book sales and going to conferences and concerts. One of the articles that I read last week is condemning Elevation. Elevation Church is going to do a worship conference or worship night, whatever, in uh, L.A. thousand bucks a ticket. Anybody want to pay a thousand bucks a ticket to go worship? Now, I didn't read the article. 
So I don't know if that's the scalping price, that that's the demand and the going rate for people who want to go, or if elevation worship and whatever they have going on, that that's what they're charging. They got to pay for the arena. You got to pay for security, promoters. This is these individuals, livelihood. Again, a workman is worthy of their wages. I don't have a stone to pick up and throw at anybody's head. But when people stand in that gap and they look at you saying, I am the voice of God and here is God's message. Give me money so that I can get this message out. If you don't give me money today, the message will not get out. You know, that kind of emotional manipulation, run. That's total side trip. To get back to prophets, they're really weird. Samuel is seen, uh, again, Moses was a prophet, clearly. There are other prophets mentioned earlier on, but he's seen as this foundation of this idea of a school of prophets. So Samuel is a leader over other men and women that have come together in this community as prophets. They're training one another. They're teaching one another. This is how you do it. They're living together in community. And the Holy Spirit is doing something special. When these men and these women and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they start speaking the word of God, 100% of the time, weird. Why? Because it's not natural. It's supernatural. God is at work in inaction. They are being possessed by and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the words that are proceeding out of their mouth are the word of God. Powerful, strange. You need to remain low in that position because when you have power with the voice that has been given to you by God, you can use it for yourself and manipulate others. So there's a school going on. So now here, as Saul is sending messengers, school's in session. The prophets are prophesying. The Holy Spirit is there, whatever this looks like. And as Saul is sending messengers to commit murder, how does God intercede? places his Holy Spirit upon these men, and they begin to speak the word of God. Weird? Absolutely. Three times weird? Absolutely. And Saul says, forget this. I'm going to go do it myself. And Saul shows up. Now Saul, right, he's, he, the Holy Spirit has been removed from him. We are told in the last chapter when the distressing spirit, this evil spirit is upon him, that he prophesied. Was he speaking the things of God or was he being a false prophet and speaking the things of this evil spirit? We don't know in context. But in this context, in this chapter, as the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, Saul becomes controlled by the Holy Spirit. Saul is there to commit murder. The Holy Spirit has been removed from Saul. As Saul is approaching Samuel and David in their alliance, He's coming with murder in his mind and murder in his heart. And as he's on the way there, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he begins to speak the word of God out of his mouth. And when he gets before Samuel, what does the Holy Spirit make Saul do? Take off your kingly regalia. 
take off your robes that identify you as king. The Holy Spirit has already removed the kingdom from Saul, we're told, in chapter 15. Not physically yet, but spiritually, absolutely. So what the Holy Spirit is doing to Saul, he is publicly humiliating Saul. Whether Saul was totally in the buff in his birthday suit, we don't know. More than likely, it's talking that he's taken off his outer garments, his outer covering as he is laying down on the ground that day and that night prophesying. God may have had him removed all of his nakedness to shame him and to humiliate him and to show Saul, you are uncovered. He sits in Leviticus, I think it's in 18... All these different sexual laws that the Lord hands, hands down, but a lot of the language talks about uncovering the nakedness of a near relative of an individual. Saul's nakedness is being uncovered publicly. God is shaming him and humiliating him and giving the culture that is witnessing this and giving Saul himself the testimony, you are not covered. Now, does Saul have the opportunity to repent? I always want to keep bringing it back. Saul, from, Saul could have woken up in this moment, like the prodigal son in the pigsty, realizing how this is what my actions have brought me to. There's no satisfaction here. There's no covering here. There's no peace here. There's no righteousness. He's completely uncovered. The Holy Spirit upon Saul in this circumstance has absolutely zero effect in this man's soul. He encounters God. He experiences God. Has the potential to be revived by the life of the life giver. And he has no turning. Have you ever had an encounter with God where you just didn't turn? You know that God spoke. You know that he was present. And you just kept going down the same road that you wanted to anyways. You ever been there? I've been there. Where did it lead you to? Peace? Happiness? Joy? Restored relationships? Darkness? Shame? Fear, nakedness, you know that you're unclothed, unrighteous. This is, this, is the, this is the picture of what our God has done in sending his son to die for us on the cross. Jesus came to cover us. This whole idea in the Old Testament of a sacrifice as a covering, the mercy seat itself as a covering over the law, Jesus has come to clothe us through faith in him with his righteousness. He hasn't come to, to uncover our nakedness and to cause us to be filled with shame publicly. He has come to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west and to clothe us in his righteousness and his life. That is why God is interceding on our behalf every single day. Creature, listen to that voice. And I'm talking to myself. I need to listen to the Holy Spirit's voice daily. 
God, we are, again, there's, there's this constant prayer to him. Here I am, Lord. I am naked and fully exposed to you. And I am asking to be clothed in your righteousness, in your light, in your compassion, in your love, that as I interact with the rest of your creation, that I am imaging you, the source of life, and not imaging to people my flesh and my nakedness and my brokenness and my shame and my fears, and my insecurities. God, don't let me image Saul, but let me image David. Now, we're going to end in Psalm 59. So turn to Psalm 59, and don't get excited. It's going to take us a few minutes. And the reason why we're turning to Psalm 59 and why I thought it was really cool for you ladies writing a song this weekend It says, David is being let down from the window of his home by his wife. And as he runs to Samuel and has a conversation with Samuel, David is also having a conversation with God. And in that alone time, whatever that looks like, David took took the time to write these emotions down. And not only write them down, he wrote them down to... Uh, music that already existed, instrument music that existed already, and he pinned some new words for this specific situation. So Psalm 59, the title says, it's to the chief musician, it's set to this specific tune called Do Not Destroy, but it's a mictum, it's a, it's a song, it's a poem of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. I love this because you get to press into David's relationship with his creator as he is battling through very painful emotions. Deliver me from my enemies. Snatch me out. Pull me out from my enemies, oh my God. Defend me. And again, a lot of the language of this psalm is going to focus on the idea of height and what is high. This idea of defend is to Put me on in a high place, a, a fortress, a refuge. They're going to be high. Defend me from those who rise up against me, Lord. Put me higher than them. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity, evil, calamity, disaster, destruction. That's what they're working. Save me, free me from bloodthirsty men, those who are looking to murder me. For look. They lie in wait, in ambush for my life. The mighty, they gather against me, literally. They gather on me. They're gathering over me. Not for my transgression, not for my crimes, nor for my sin, my offense, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault, no misdeed of mine. And just sit with David in his language. He's pouring out his heart to God. God, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't, I'm not in sin. And again, this is, he's, it's not saying that he's free from sin and he's sinless like any of us. The idea, I haven't, I haven't sinned. I haven't missed against Saul. I haven't committed any crimes against the king. I haven't done anything evil. He's using all these different words to describe what sin is in the Old Testament context. Lord, I'm, I'm free from all of that. And what's his cry? God, wake up, awake and help Meet me, Lord. Awake to help me. And behold, wake up and see, God. 
You, therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Awake to visit all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors, those who are treacherous, those who are sinning covertly. And again, it has this pause, this selah in the text. Because again, you're just to, to sit and meditate in David's petition. You ever felt hunted? Hunted spiritually? Hunted by the culture? Hunted in a relationship where somebody is persecuting you? They're coming against you? You haven't done anything wrong? You're right, your heart is right before the Lord and you're crying out to God. You're interceding on your own behalf, petitioning God to intercede on your behalf in this moment, in this circumstance. Verse 6 and 7 here, it's kind of like the chorus. At evening they return, they growl like a dog, and go all around the city, I'm surrounded. Indeed, they belch, they gush with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? Nobody knows what we're doing. Nobody sees. Verse 8. But, but you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. And this is thoughts tied back to Psalm 2. I will wait for you. And not, it's not just I'm going to sit back and wait for God to do something. I'm going to watch for you. Constant attention towards the Lord, what the Lord's going to do in this circumstance, what he's directing David to do. Constant attention in our lives. Lord, I, I am watching for you. You are my strength. Oh, you, his strength in the text. More than likely, it's oh, you, my strength. You're my refuge. For God is my defense. He is my fortress. He is my high point. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Look at David's faith in contrast to Saul's fear. Saul is trying to get his will done and David here is sitting in hot persecution, full trust of the Lord. Lord, you and you alone, you are my strength, you are my defense, you are, you are my mercy, you are loyal to me. Lord, you will preserve me. And my desire, remember, his heart is for God, so his heart is for God's heart on those who would be his enemies. He lands on confident, faithful assurance in God. Now, in the psalm, it's parallelism. So what he just said in those first 10 verses, he's going to say the same thing over again in the same format in just different words. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth, and the words of their lips, let them even be taken, caught in their pride. And again, pride is it's elevating yourself. Let them be caught in their height. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath. Consume them. 
and literally stop them, bring them to an end, finish them. And whether he's talking about them physically, like kill them, God, or he's just talking about consume their, you know, the, their schemes that they're concern, uh, currently pursuing in David's life. Why? That they may not be. And let them know, ultimately, always, let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Repeated chorus here. At the evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. Verse 16. But I will. I'm going to sing. And this three times singing is mentioned. Three different words in Hebrew. Here it's I'm going to sing with my voice. I will sing of your power, of your strength. Yes, I will sing aloud. I'm, I'm going to call aloud and passionately and powerfully. I am going to sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. There's great confidence. I'm going to live through the night and sing of your mercy in the morning. Why? For you have been historically, you have been my defense, my high point and refuge in the day of my trouble. Trouble, this is ideas that you're, you feel enveloped. You were just wrapped around and surrounded by trouble. God was my refuge in that day. To you, oh my strength, I will sing praises. This is uh, the idea of instruments. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. So when did David write this? As he's on the run from Gibeah to Ramah? Before he has a conversation with Samuel? After he has a conversation with Samuel? Understanding, in, in context, David has written this before the messengers of Saul show up to kill him. And what does David witness? He inter David intercedes. He's got a big problem. Death is at his doorstep. He's hunted. He's a fugitive of the king of the nation in which he dwells. And he takes this time to have a conversation with somebody that he loves and respects. He takes time to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with God. Do you think David cried? We're going to see David cry a lot. He's an emotional guy. A man's man, a warrior, a general, no doubt. But he's also got this other side of him. A man who sings, a man who plays instruments, a man who writes poetry. And in this poetry, he's, he's never afraid to pour out his heart and the truth to his creator. This is what's going on. This is why I'm asking you to intercede on my behalf. Lord, search me and know me. See if there's any wicked way within me, Lord. And if there is, would you deal with it? Would you wash me? Would you purge me? Would you cleanse me from my unrighteousness and my sin? But here, David knows in this context, God, I'm not out of step here. And I'm being hunted. They're growling like dogs on the hunt in pursuit. And I am surrounded. But I know who you are. And I'm confident in who you are. And I'm going to watch for you to work in this circumstance. I'm going to watch. I'm going to sing. 
I'm going to praise. I'm not going to live in fear. I'm not going to live in intimidation. My faith is in Yahweh, the God who created the heavens and the earth. I know in whom I believe. And God, I am confident in your will. And if it's my death, it's my death. But David knows he's got a future before him, so he's going to stand watch, and he watches God intercede on that day. As Samuel and David are standing there, David watches the Holy Spirit in three groups of messengers, and he watches the Almighty God humiliate and humble the man that is pursuing sin and watches God elevate David in the eyes of all. Do you think David needs to hold on to this song in this circumstance for the next 20 years? You better believe that he does. Do you think David's going to have opportunity in the next 20 years of his life to question his anointing, to question his calling, to question the desire and will of God in his life? Maybe God got it wrong. Maybe he meant to anoint one of my brothers or a neighbor. I guarantee, again, as we look in history, what God has done in history in saving us, whether it's in history on the cross and that testimony that we can sit in and the ultimate act of our salvation in delivering us from sin and unrighteousness and darkness, or he has saved us out of circumstances, whether those are circumstances of health or relationship or in the culture, our God is there as our intercessor we're told again in romans 8 that he is in us praying through us sometimes it's just with groanings you don't even have words to say and express but god has his will to perform in your life and what is he asking you to do trust me i love you and i am here to make you just like me for all eternity is he worth following regardless of what the outside looks like always worship team come on up father i i i give you great thanks for your word passages like this lord i just uh, you know in my flesh i want to beat saul up and just string him up kill him install david as king but lord you had a plan and a purpose historically in david's life and you needed to you needed to cause him to travel down a specific road so that that man could perform your will in his life and in his context. So Lord, I confess to you, here I am and here's my life. Whatever road you need to take me down to cause me to be free and safe and high in your refuge, in your strength, and trust in you, Lord, I give you free permission and access to all of my life. Lord, I pray for everybody in this room. There's not a single man or woman here who I want to see shamed like Saul. I don't want to see anybody uncovered. I don't want to know the depths of their sins. Lord, I want them to get all of that right with you this morning. Yeah, it's in boldness, Lord. And I say this for my own life. If I refuse to listen to you, if any of us refuse to listen to you, may you uncover us just like you uncovered Saul. 
not for our destruction, Lord. But whatever, it's, whatever is necessary in our lives to bring us to you and to keep us following you. Whether we identify that as good or bad, hard or easy, let your perfect will be done. We trust you. Thank you for interceding into the context of our life every single day, Lord. We love you and we worship you and we are going to sing aloud of your praises. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.